Welcome to your mandatory wellness session. I'm your host, Anoop. And I'm your other host, Samir. Samir, how's it going? It's going all right. As it is every time. Every single time. It's okay. It's all right. (laughs) Yeah, we know. (laughs) It's going superlatively. No, I I don't know. It's, uh, yeah, it's it's been pretty good. Yeah. Uh, When when did we last record? What was it, a couple weeks ago? I don't know. Who's to say? Yeah, time is a blur. Um, And largely meaningless. (laughs) So, um... Yeah, no, it's been it's been pretty good. I think largely the same things we had mentioned last time, uh, which are that not necessarily probably operating as much as we normally would be, but it's okay. Getting some stuff done, learning some things. I had a couple times in the OR this week where I didn't feel totally incompetent, which was nice. It was a nice change. <laughs> so yeah, that's always a good feeling. Yeah, overall okay. If I would say I cannot feel incompetent two to three times a week. It's a pretty solid week. It's a pretty good week. Dude. I'll tell you what's been helping. I've had some medical students with me. Oh, confidence boosters. <laughs> Just like, hey, remember, once upon a time, you were dumber than you are now. <laughs> right. D- dumber is unfair because one could argue I was actually smarter then, but I just knew fewer things. Yeah, that's fair. That's fair. <laughs> and these medical students have actually been much more impressive than I was as a medical student. So I'll give them that. We, we recently had um, several sub eyes on um, and all of whom were uh, all very good. Uh, and I was like, wow. Was I, was I this guy? <laughs> like maybe, I don't know, maybe. I, I don't really, it's really hard to objectively judge yourself, particularly in hindsight, looking back like three years, but I don't know. I was impressed. Yeah. Well, what's really held up is that I have this theory that when you're on with a group of medical students, you are actually judged more as a group than you are individually. And as it were, I did a rotation at the hospital I currently work at. And the only feedback I ever get is like, oh, wow, you guys were a really good group. Mm. Like, they always say that. I will say that the sub eyes I'm talking about were all individual. Like, they came on in subsequent weeks. Yeah. Um, so there, there was not this sort of group effect. Sure, uh, sure, As sure, it were. Yeah. If they're individual, yeah. that's definitely different. I think that is advice in general for medical students, which is just that the whole throwing each other under the, under the bus thing or trying to, like, elevate yourself by whatever, like, doesn't really make you look good. Um, because if you all look good, the residents just are like, oh, yeah, those med students were good. Yeah. Samir, you've put me in a very tough position right now. Because technically, you giving advice is like the perfect transition into the topic for the week. Oh. We're only in, like, we're five minutes into our messing around oh, yeah. portion of the okay. podcast. God, God damn it. We okay. can't get well, down to business yet. No, we cannot. No. Uh, Mulan will not have it. No. <laughs> Far too early. Oh, man. So Disney is putting Mulan on Disney+. Plus. For $30. Wait, what? Yeah. So it's it's going to be on Disney Plus, but you have to pay an additional oh. $30. I assumed it was a just on Disney Plus kind of thing. No. No. That's, it's okay. So here's my question about Mulan. This, and this, this is, of course, the live action Mulan. Sure. One, was that ever released in theaters? Or no, no it was supposed COVID? to come out like a month or two ago. Uh, I see. And it hasn't because... I don't actually know. Why are theaters closed? Unclear. Yeah. Although, actually, may I just add, I was recently watching the NBA playoffs, and they keep having previews for the movie Tenet, the Christopher Nolan movie, which looks super interesting. I don't know anything. Like, no, I don't know what it's about, and I'm trying to avoid watching previews because, sure. as you as we've discussed, they just ruin movies consistently. Mm-hmm. But I guess that's being released in theaters at some point. Sure. But that seems weird to me. I don't so we're going to get into an aside because you've you've triggered me. <laughs> <laughs> all right. But this is a very Nolan thing. First of all, I will say Nolan clearly has some sort of creative oversight on his previews because he does have a way of making them very vague. On top of that, it's a given 
for his movies, you're not necessarily going to understand what's going on. Like, people think of Nolan, I think the popular knowledge of Nolan is from Batman. And those are his most straightforward movies. Well, I think Inception, too. Inception, well right? For. And Inception, if you watch the previews after seeing the movie, you're like, oh, this is like, there's scenes from like the end of the movie in the preview. Right. But you would have no way of knowing that from the preview mm. itself. It is essentially a string of random information. Uh, and Tenet appears to be similar in that quality. It seems much more spiritually similar to inception than any of his other movies yes i that was my impression as well right the thing about nolan is he is one of the people who most takes advantage of the theater experience uh yes you, you think about the soundtrack for inception right Hans zimmer and it was created to be listened to in a theater to be clear such an influential soundtrack with like the thing like that that like changed trailers pretty much. Yeah, it ruined movies for a while. <laughs> like, <laughs> for it's, a good five years. It's so good that other people had to do it, but they could only do it poorly. <laughs> yes. yes. Uh, I mean, to the pl- I mean, oh my god. I mean, once again, very cool when it happened in the movie, and was just so irritating for the next five years. Right. Right. And so I mean, the every single trailer just uh, yeah, the imagery and sort of the effects used in in Inception are meant to be seen in a. Th- uh, theater and based on my cursory understanding of Tenet and just sort of his filmmaking in general I would say that's probably going to be the case again just some of the previews show a lot of like big action set pieces and and Nolan doesn't do action set pieces like uh, like a Transformers movie or a Fast and the Furious movie those movies you could watch on your phone you'll get the same amount of useful information out of them Nolan creates sort of He's creating a set piece, and he's really—it's—it's it's meant to be consumed in its entirety. So, also, what a, what a withering critique of those movies to say you could watch them on your phone. Like, I, it's hard to express how like brutal a statement that is. Yes. I, to be fair, I haven't really watched those movies like really at all. So, okay, but it's just man. I mean, you could yeah. also not watch them and probably get the same amount of information. They're they're the theatrical equivalent of junk food. It's like, yeah, eat a spoonful of sugar. You will get calories from that. But Sure. Okay, so all that to say, because of that, you're saying that... I guess that makes sense. Which he is why, does like, not even... want to release it to home video. Sure. And he has been delaying for a while, because it was supposed to come out a while ago. Yeah, He kept was. saying, like, oh, we're going to let it out in theaters once theaters reopen. How they're going to reopen is a big question. How much money he's going to make off of that. I don't know. I got to imagine a lot still because now you're cutting the seats in half and you're saying like, okay, if you really want to see Tenet, you got to come here. I feel like those theaters are going to be sold out. Hopefully they cut the seats in half and they say like every other seat. Right. At the very least. It seems still dangerous to me, but it is as a person who likes movies. That is the way I want to see Tenet is in a theater, preferably IMAX if I can. But as but am I am I gonna do it? Like I, I I don't know. I mean, I think in a normal circumstance, I would definitely go see it. Right. In a now circumstance, I I, I don't know. I feel like probably not. And the thing is, I avoided crowded theaters at a baseline. Like pre-pandemic, I would go at weird times during the day. Usually, I'd go first thing in yes. the morning on the weekend, That's a good point. so that you know you go and there's not that many people there. But if you're cutting the number of seats in the theater, I imagine the showings will be more packed in general, like for longer. So it's hard to avoid groups of people. It's coming out in September, on September 3rd, 2020. So presumably it'll be in theaters for a while. I guess if if it's still there by like November, maybe I'll go check it out. Yeah, yeah. The other thing is like, I don't want it to be spoiled. And that's just me living a life that I'm not allowed to live anymore. (laughs) 
which is like the life of a doctor does not mean that you can stay on top of everything at all times. It's like there's a very popular video game that came out pretty recently as a very small aside on top of this aside called uh, The Last of Us 2. And I really liked the first one in that series. I still haven't played the second one because I'm just like, I don't know. I, I don't have the time to play like a 20, 30 hour video game, but... I've also successfully avoided spoilers for it, so that's pretty good. I imagine one day I'll see them. The internet seemed pretty mad about that game um, because it has non-heteronormative people in it, and that made people angry because the world is terrible. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> All right. It still seems, uh, despite their upsetness about the game, I think I would still like it because I'm not a monster. Perfect. Great. Okay, so back to our original tangent, which is Mulan. Yes. So Mulan is being, that's interesting news, it's being released, but for $30 seems like a lot. Right. Like, it feels like the optimal price point there is like 15 That would be my thought. Their thought is that you're watching it in a group. So normally they sure. would have it's like sold... It's like pay-per-view pricing for like a bar. Right. You're paying, what, like $15, $20 a person. The thing for me, when I go to a theater, I pay those prices because I love going to the movies. And so I am paying that price to be in a movie theater. Right. I, I, I go to bougie movie theaters. Like, I go to the ones with the reclining seats and all of that stuff. Uh, and I go to the movies a lot. I think, I don't know if we mentioned this on the podcast, but, like, I saw all the Oscar movies last year. Probably won't this year because... Uh, well, what? Right. I think Trolls will be nominated for most of the Oscars this year. <laughs> Trolls World Tour. I didn't, I, didn't even, I didn't even consider that. Oh my yeah. goodness. All right. That's a whole different discussion. It's going to win Best Picture, is all I'm saying. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Besides the point, I, I like the movie theater, but I pay those prices because I assume a large portion of that is going to the movie theater itself. Mm. I don't pay those prices to give Disney $15. Right. Let alone to give Disney $30 directly. It's just, it's going right to them. There's no distribution. Yeah. Disney Plus is already created. Yeah, like, I, I, I think that's very much the, right. Because they're basically trying to replicate the revenue they're going to, they would generate in a theater. But like what you're providing is not the same. Yeah. Now, let me take you into a world, Saber, of the liberal conundrum in 2020. And this is how hard it is to attempt to be like a liberal person who has a moral center and respects other cultures, right? I know multiple people who say they are going to spend $30 on Mulan. Why? Because they don't want to send the movie, The they don't sure. want to send this message that this movie is not making money because it has an Asian cast, right? Which is how Hollywood works, unfortunately. Uh, yeah, I didn't, I didn't consider that aspect, right? Uh, yes, so that's the first level. But Inception style, we gotta go one level deeper. <laughs> oh wow, this has worked out great. <laughs> the cast of Mulan has been very troubling when it comes to their stance on Hong Kong, right? Because they, to be able to be in the movie, they have to be politically savvy, for a lack of a better term, when it comes to the Chinese government. So they have to be pro-Chinese government. So a lot of them actually have very troubling stances on the hong kong situation so should you then not support the movie because these people all have poor stances on that the second level it feels like there should be a third level i wish there was a third level but i don't have one right now mm. let's, let's let's brainstorm a third level a third level this movie doesn't have any songs in it what the fuck is oh. that bullshit it is not like a direct adaptation it is a taking the story and sort of putting it in a different context my understanding, my and admittedly I don't know the whole cultural background of it, is this is closer to the actual 
sort of story of Mulan, like the fable story of Mulan, as opposed to the Disney version of the fable. Is it bad that I did not know there was a fable version of Mulan? Well, yes. Mulan's not a real person. It's theoretically based on a a real person. (laughs) Yeah, so I didn't... I thought this was just a from whole cloth Disney thing. No, no, Disney doesn't doesn't do that. Okay, it does that occasionally. When's the last time it's done that? I don't guess name I'm, a Pixar movie. Yeah, Pixar, Pixar doesn't. Count. Count. <laughs> yeah. Pixar, Pixar doesn't count. Yeah. Hmm. You have made a very good point. Yeah. <laughs> Theoretically, Lion King, but then if no, you do any research Lion on King Lion is King, Hamlet. It's Hamlet, right. and it's a. It's actually there's a Japanese anime called Kimba that is the plot <laughs> of Simba. <laughs> Look it up. I'm not making that up. <laughs> Oh, wow, that's good. That's really good. Yes, so it's out there. I mean, that stuff exists. So it's a very interesting position to be in. Like, what do you do? There are movies that I've gone to specifically to support people and cultures. Like, I saw The Farewell. That movie was great also. So that was an easy decision to make. It's really great when supporting people also means just going to see a really good movie. <laughs> like, I've actually never heard of this movie. This oh, The Farewell. Oh, oh, no, no. I, I heard about it, but I didn't see it. Oh, this actually looks really good. I really want to see this, actually. It's uh, it's Aquafina, who is very popular in Crazy Rich Asians. Uh, she, It's a very dramatic performance, but it's also like lightly funny. It's got that perfect kind of smattering of funny on top of what is ultimately a very dramatic sort of setting. Uh, it reminds me spiritually similar to The Big Sick, I'd say. Yeah. 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 Interesting. Yeah, yeah. I think I saw either previews for it or I think I had to heard about it. And it was very, I, I totally forgot that movie existed. But actually, when I saw the information about it, I was like, oh, this is a movie I think I would really enjoy. Yes, I think you would as well. So something mm-hmm. to watch. Okay. Uh, And there's movies like Parasite where I was like, oh, foreign language film, let's go see it. See, I'll see things just because they are different, you know? Uh, The only thing that I tend to avoid is movies that I just, like, know are going to be incredibly depressingly sad. And I already kind of know the fundamental tenet of the movie, which is just, like, I still haven't seen Moonlight. Yeah, okay, yeah. Honestly, I was thinking of Moonlight also. I have also not seen it. I know it's, like, incredible and just soul-destroying. But it's like, I, I never have a good day where I'm like, time to get my soul destroyed, you know? Right, right. It's just, it's never, it, it never feels like the moment for that. Um, but maybe I, maybe I should. Yeah. Maybe I should pencil it in. There was a weekend where I watched the end of BoJack Horseman and Marriage Story in the same weekend. And I was emotionally devastated afterwards. Because, <laughs> I mean, anybody who's watched BoJack Horseman knows that that's not exactly a happy show. And the ending is uh, middling at best, sort of, uh, in terms of its emotional resonance. I, I think it was a great ending. But Marriage Story is also not, like, a happy movie either. Sure. Yeah. So, yeah. You know, on, on the subject of Mulan... Sure. You know, I think what's what's interesting about that about that movie... And I'm thinking of kind of the original Disney movie is um, the type of mentors that she has <laughs> during that movie. <laughs> I think what we can all agree on is we need more talking dragons in medicine. <laughs> That's the clear answer. Yeah. You know, if you if you don't have Eddie Murphy wisecracking in the form of a small dragon, can you even pretend that you're going to have any form of wellness? Yes. And, you know, I see some programs and they come out and they show us like we got this talking donkey and I'm like, wrong movie. What are you doing? <laughs> what are you doing? It's a totally different movie. Same actor. <laughs> Same actor. Wrong movie. I don't need waffles. I need mentorship. <laughs> 
But yeah, so that um, that was a very natural transition. Uh, into... We should have transitioned when we were talking about advice. Yeah, it was clearly the move. Yeah. Instead, we just talked about movies for 15 minutes. I'm not sure if that was worth it or not. But regardless, our topic for this week is about mentorship in medicine. A thing we've discussed before, uh, I think it came up particularly in episode seven where we discussed imposter syndrome. Um, but really the importance of having mentors, both formal and informal within medicine, and how that affects things like resident wellness and burnout. Anu, what has your experience been with mentors, both in med school and residency? And do you feel like that's been something you've really relied on or something that's just kind of been there along the way? There are two things that come to mind when I think of mentorship throughout medical school and residency. The first is the mentorship that they attempt to provide, which is that there are often programs done by medical schools and residency where they're like, we will pair you with a mentor that are largely ineffectual because they don't have any sort of backup to those programs. They're just like, okay, here's an email address and a phone number. This person is your mentor now. It's funny to think that they think that would work because they put more thought into like study groups during medical school i think you remember that time when we filled out like whole personality surveys just to be paired up with a study group that i think very few people ended up like working with oh my god no i actually completely forgot about that yeah, yeah. <laughs> we did like myers-briggs testing we did which by the way is not like a thing really no not not randomized controlled double-blind studied suffice it to say but yeah wow oh my god how did i forget about that wow that was was that first year wasn't it first year yeah yeah and that's a version of it it's just like the concept that you could just stick people together and they will form a study group or they will form a mentor mentee relationship it doesn't hold up that you could just like put two people together and they'll form a relationship like that right the other thing i think about are the actual sort of mentors that i've had throughout my time in medicine they've mostly been people whom i worked with on my own who i developed some sort of rapport with and ended up liking and a lot of them weren't actually attendings most of them were residents uh senior residents usually because they were people who actually kind of understood what i was going through as opposed to attendings who always felt very separated from everything that was going on so those are the two things I think about, sort of the failed attempts at mentorship and then the mentors that I actually ended up having. It's interesting you mention uh, residents as mentors in general. So for this, we looked at a couple different papers that were talking about mentorship and residency. A lot of these were about mentorship and surgical residency, although there are several certainly discussed in other residencies as well. And in one of those studies where, where it's basically asking medical students about their views of surgery after a surgical rotation that correlated with basically feeling like they found a mentor. And they often ranked residents as basically meeting different criteria of being a good mentor more highly than they ranked attendings, uh, which I thought was pretty interesting, actually. Not necessarily intrinsically shocking to me, I think for the reasons you just said, right? If residents are kind of, you know, residents are closer to med students, they re remember more distinctly what it's like to be a third year med student which comes with its whole, you know, bag of bullshit, if you will. And so that wasn't necessarily surprising. It's something that I've also experienced, right? I, I distinctly remember, I mean, I, I, I'm a urology resident and in medical school at one point, I was very interested in neurosurgery. And there were a lot of reasons I ended up moving away from that and choosing urology. But I will say there was a point relatively early on, I want to say either in first or second year, where I was shadowing an attending urologist who I got along with well, nice guy. 
But I particularly remember like super vibing with one of the uh, urology residents. Uh, I did like a clinic with him and he was just like the coolest person and like the way he interacted with patients and how he explained things to them and just like his entire way of going about his day. I was like, I kind of want to be you. Like you seem, you seem like somebody in, in you. I see the the type of, you know, resident I want to be and the type of career I want to have basically. And I think I felt that way about attendings before too, but I think the closeness to my station helped a lot there. Yeah, yeah. I actually, I want to read the particular quote that you're referencing from this article because I do think it's particularly powerful. So it starts by talking about just the role of mentors on the surgical rotation. So it says, of students expressing a positive view of surgery after a surgical rotation, 86% had identified a role model or mentor during placement. This was in contrast to only 52% identifying mentors among those who retained a negative view of surgery. So essentially saying like, you were more likely to have a role model when you had a good experience. Just a correlation, right? Right. It could, could go the other way, right? If you if you liked surgery to begin with, you're more likely to want to find one, right? Exactly. So, like, so you know, no causality there. But the, the statement that I really like is, interestingly, in the same study, resident role models consistently outscored attendings in terms of physician qualities, supervisor qualities, teaching qualities, and personal qualities in the eyes of the students. Now, the reason I think that's particularly interesting is it's easy to see why you would have a better personal relationship with your resident. They're more likely just to be younger and closer to your age, right? You see them all the time. So that's perfect, right? That makes perfect sense. But the physician qualities is what really stands out to me, right? Because mm-hmm. objectively, they should be worse than the attendings at being a physician. That's the whole thing. And at <laughs> least in the eyes of the med students, they think that the residents are exemplifying what it means to be a physician more than they're attending. Now, why is that, right? Obviously, observer bias, right? The, the med student's always there. They see the resident being a physician, whereas frequently they don't see the attending being a physician. Of course. But I I do think that's a very meaningful thing. To actually see somebody in practice makes it more likely that you're going to develop that bond with them. You know, regardless of the reason why, the reason they see these residents as better physicians is because they're with the resident all the time. But it leads to them accepting the resident as a role model, as opposed to the example I gave of just like being assigned to a person to be your mentor. I'm like, I don't even know what type of doctor this person is. I don't know if I want to be like them. Like, I'll tell you, I've had a mentor who was assigned to me and I barely spoke to him for a very long time. Then I rotated with him and shadowed him and worked with him. And he was a great educator. He was great with his patients, all this stuff. And after that point in time, he was a mentor. So that's literally within the same person. I had no interest in being a mentor mentee with him. But the second I worked with him, I was like, oh, this guy actually is a person I would want to take advice from. Totally. Yeah, no, I I think I I 100% agree with you. I think I think, I think that's a very specific point and a good one, which is that in that day-to-day, right, I mean, as a resident, and obviously it depends on the rotation you're on, but I think if you're on a surgical rotation, I don't think you see as much of the physician-patient interaction with an attending. Now, if you're with them in clinic, maybe you do, but like on the on the inpatient side, you don't really. And on the medicine side, I think a lot of what you see is the attending goes into the room, talks with the patient, they have some sort of brief discussion about the overall plan, and you kind of leave from that. But I think even as a medical student, I knew that a lot of what really happens in the day-to-day is done by the residents. 
like when the patient has like a new question about something at like 4 p.m. or something's going on, there's suddenly some pro- like the resident is the person who's sort of there and has to deal with the sort of the, the minutiae and the and the minute to minute hour to hour changes. And I think as a med student, I think when you see that, it does sort of exemplify the qualities I think we associate with being a good physician, with having empathy, with being able to explain things a certain way. Uh, I'll say as a good example, I remember as a medical student being around when the residents consented patients for surgery, a thing that I now, of course, do. And it was very clear which residents I wanted to be like. I just, This is like a personal pet peeve of mine. I, I really get annoyed when I think when people consent patients and don't explain things in a way that is understandable because like it's like a procedure or a surgery like you you need like the patient needs to understand what is happening and like what is going to happen and the risks and obviously there there are there are there's an extent to which that goes right because there are some things that you're not going to necessarily consent every single patient for like the risk of death due to your surgery if it's like a minor surgery, I mean, it's it's known, of course, right? And the anesthesia will mention to them, you know, in with anesthesia, there's a risk of, you know, all these things. But for like these more minor procedures, you don't necessarily mention if someone's going to be like under MAC for like a colonoscopy. Mm-hmm. Are you mentioning death as a risk? Probably not. But fundamentally, the major risks of things that could really and distinctly go wrong, it's just important people understand what those are and why you are why you are still recommending whatever you're recommending. Uh, and I don't think that's necessarily always done. And I think part of that is because it's a time thing, right? It takes it takes time to explain those things. Patients will have questions. You're busy. You're running around trying to do a million things at once. But often I think it is super important. And something that when I saw residents do it, it was a very clear, concrete example of like, you're the type of person I want to be like. This is the kind of relationship I want to have with my patients in the future. Um, and so I think those interactions are super important. And I don't think you necessarily always get them with attendings as a med student. Yes, yes. And I, I do think there's actually a little bit of selection bias uh, for what we give give the medical students. We tend to bring the medical students in on cases where we think there is a good learning opportunity or that the patient is like okay with having the medical student there. And what it does, it creates a very protected environment, which is good. I mean, you should learn in a protected environment, but oftentimes you remove from them the ability to see the actual like nitty gritty of stuff you need to do. Like, what do you do when a patient is actually just anxious about the procedure, right? And a lot of the times it's like, well, I mean, the resident goes deals with it. The resident comforts the patient. And then if the resident then fails, then the attending will come in and maybe be kind of mean to the patient and like bully them into doing it. That's obviously a very specific example, but like that's not always the case. Sometimes the attending pulls out all the stops and they're great at it. But like oftentimes it is the resident who is the first person kind of going in to attempt to convince somebody to do a procedure if they're feeling very anxious about it or whatever and and the med students are more likely to see that because you're the person who deals with it first. Right. Um, I'll say interestingly, later in the same article, they talk about the fact that med students often feel like they are an inconvenience to the team. The exact quote is, 50% of students believe that they represent an inconvenience to the surgical team structure, with 17% of the opinion that residents and faculty would prefer for them not to be present. Interestingly, 30% of residents and 27% of faculty agreed with the former statement. Which is to say, maybe not a totally inaccurate perception, meaning that I think as a resident, and I think any resident would agree with this, there are definitely days when you're like, I don't want a medical student to be here right now. I have so many things going on. It's sort of an additional, it feels like an additional burden. But I think it is important as a resident to remember that at the end of the day, 
the medical, it did a really important thing for their education to be around and to be a part of this and to learn. And so as long as the medical student is not like extraordinarily socially unaware and just like constantly in the way, they can still be actually very helpful even uh, during a very busy day. And they can do things that are not going to get in your way. And so I had to kind of correct my own mindset to be like, this person's here. They're like actually a reasonably helpful person. Like I shouldn't be like, I want to just do my own thing. I should try to get them involved in, in a way that can help them and help me actually. Yes. A quote unquote useless medical student is more often a failure of creativity on the part of the resident or the attending. And I know this because I am a radiology resident where there is actually nothing that the medical student can do while they are shadowing me. There's, there's just, they can't read the image. They can't generate a report. So there's nothing that they could really help me with there. And so when a med student just comes and sits behind me, that's my fault that they're not doing anything. That's not their fault. They're doing, they're showing up for their rotation. It's not that they're useless. It's that I'm being a useless teacher. <laughs> so, you know, the, the best way that that's channeled in radiology is like you, you give them assignments, you give them stuff to read about, you have them report back on stuff. You, you just get them looking at the images and say, oh, what do you think about this? What do you think about this? Like, just get them involved. And yes, that makes your day slower. Like there's, de- like you're saying, there's definitely days where I'm like, I could just crank through studies. Yeah, and like totally be done with this list but the fact of the matter is they came and this is part of your job i think that's the biggest thing that keeps people from like engaging with med students is they don't think that the teaching is part of their job it is it's a thing you should do and more more importantly somebody did it for you at one point in time so just pay it forward at the very least but it you know, you don't have to think about it that way. It is it is just a thing you're supposed to do. You're supposed to be an educator. When you're at a teaching program, you're supposed to be an educator. And sometimes you f- you find many attendings who forget that. You know, they don't think that that's their problem. And you find many residents who are so obsessed with being a resident themselves that they don't have time to, like, think that they should take care of other people, that they should pass it down. But I, I'm saying that that's more a failing on your part than it is on the med student's part. It's not the med student being useless. With the caveat that there are med students who maybe aren't great. That's a possibility, sure. right? But that applies to like people. That's people, right? So you put that off to the side. Just like an average med student who presumably did all the work to get into medical school and like get to the point of his or her rotations, they know what they're doing, right? They know stuff. So like find the stuff they know, find the stuff they don't know, teach. And it doesn't always have to be super involved. Like I said, with radiology, it's a lot of just like read about something, tell me about something, present something, right? Just getting their head in the game, making them feel like they're contributing in some way, shape or form. Right. And I think so kind of along the lines you were saying about that's the role of sort of the resident as the teacher and that attendings need to remember that role as well, of course, gets to the point of mentorship of residents, right? By attendings and how that in and of itself uh, or the lack of it can contribute to burnout and sort of a lack of wellness. And I think this is actually a really interesting point as well. There are several studies that look at this. One that I had found, which I thought was pretty interesting, it's a small study, but I think still an interesting result, is basically a small program of ENT residents. And they basically assign them to get sort of what's called mosaic mentorship. So one sort of main mentor, and then several supplemental mentors that could help with other various aspects of life, basically. And they have them take uh, surveys ahead of time. Uh, basically things that uh, quantified stress and burnout and quality of life, these sort of well-validated surveys and questionnaires. And then they had them do it at intervals following the introduction of this program. And of course, there is, there's always like the Hawthorne bias effect of like, oh, you're in a study. So like maybe your results are going to be better because you know you're being studied. But very consistently and by very large amounts, rates of burnout improved 
overall like life satisfaction and quality of life improved and like like honestly beyond just like like statistically significant like very clinically significant jumps like huge actually which i think is super interesting i can't say it's necessarily shocking but to that extent was actually pretty surprising to me i'm not sure how you felt about it yeah yeah the the numbers were pretty shocking to me because as you said it's such a small study that like obtaining statistical significance is pretty difficult there were actually statistically significant improvements in just overall quality of life but they also stratified it down into psychological social physical and sort of environmental so like in all aspects yeah there's a statistically significant improvement in your quality of life due to this sort of mentorship program you talked a little bit about sort of the bias inherent behind being in a study. I think the the main source of bias that I think would exist here is just the fact that actually the attendings have to sign up to be in the study. So whoever's becoming your mentor is probably a person who wants to be a mentor, right? This sure. isn't just an arbitrarily assigned person. Although I think, for, I think for them, when they asked, I believe they got like, basically all their attendings were like, yeah, sure, I think. Oh. Um and then they only ended up using some of them because there was more attendings than residents, I think. Well, that's probably a good sign for their program. <laughs> we can critique the paper you would in the journal club, right? Yeah. Single single center study, small N, yeah. like, of course. I'm not saying these results are generalizable more broadly, but they are certainly interesting. I think what was particularly interesting about the study is how they structured their mentorship program as well. I didn't know about this term of like mosaic mentorship uh, until I read these articles. It's mentioned in actually several of them. Also, another thing that's mentioned in literally all these articles is the origin of the word mentor. Oh my god, every single one. Webster Dictionary defines mentor <laughs> as such and such, and then mentor. <laughs> literally every single discussion section talks about how it comes from the Greek myth, like like the Odyssey. The Odyssey. And yeah. how Odysseus left his son in the care of his like friend mentor it's so like the origin of words is just like kind of whack sometimes where you're like oh yeah that's just a character in the book it's like if 40 50 100 years from now 200 years from now we just use like dumbledore as a word it's like that guy's <laughs> a real dumbledore <laughs> like <laughs> honestly the first time i read it in one of these papers i was like wow how interesting and the second third and fourth times i was like you know what less interesting yeah <laughs> I'll, I'll throw some shade on the IR community. This is very light teasing. Every time there is a talk about IR, they have to talk about the guy who invented interventional radiology called Charles Dodder. Great guy. Really seems like he did something amazing. But every single one is like, when Charles Dodder invented <laughs> interventional radiology, like, guys, come on, we get it. Like, you go to a convention, it's like, I hear his, his whole life story like 10 times a day <laughs> before every single talk. I was talking about this the other day. The guy, who, like, Seldinger, who invented, like, the Seldinger technique, uh, that just seems like the obvious technique. It's like you put a wire in while, like, holding your position and remove the other thing, right? Like, what? what? I oh, mean, yeah. I like to think that maybe it's just obvious to us because we've been doing it this whole time. I guess. I guess. But, yeah, <laughs> that does feel a little cheap. <laughs> a little, yeah. like, really? So you get your name, like... And it's used everywhere. In yeah. like every single field that does any procedure, it's like Seldinger. Yeah. Got a Seldinger. I'm like, yeah, I mean, sure, obviously. Yeah. <laughs> Separate point. Anyway, point being, this study I think is pretty interesting because the way they've structured it actually, they basically had um, people sort of initially kind of assigned to a mentor as an intern. And then after that, they basically got the opportunity to either stick with that mentor or choose somebody else, basically. And they also had these sort of additional mentors who they got to meet with basically as needed. And that would maybe help them in other specific areas of their life. So maybe you have one person, maybe you're interested in like 
head and neck oncology. And so your main mentor is like that person, but your other mentor is somebody who, for example, like raised a family during residency and you have kids and like, maybe you want to talk about that because that's super hard. Right. And so basically that ability to sort of parcel it out into multiple areas and not put it all on one person to be like your guru right. for your entire life, basically, I think also takes pressure off the mentor-mentee relationship as well. Not something I was aware of as like a specific format. Right. I mean, tale as old as time, right? It takes a village to raise a child. It takes a village to train a resident, if you will. You need to be addressing a person as they exist as a, a multifaceted individual. That's actually a really great point to look at mentorship programs in general often try to address you as though you are a monolith and really assessing a resident as a person who outside of their choice of specialties could be anybody you know obviously you always already chose to do urology but they don't that doesn't mean anything about your sort of personality otherwise right yeah except that you're probably okay with dick jokes that's the only thing they know it's the only thing they know about me yeah which is like 90% 90% of your personality. So that's a good start for them. <laughs> right. But that, that, that only applies to me. It's yeah. not. Right. That's not a general comment on like urology resume. Yeah. Yeah. yeah right. So I think, I think that was pretty interesting. And I think actually that dovetails with a good point. I think something we mentioned during the imposter syndrome episode, which is that a lot of these things are just more difficult for basically underrepresented minorities in medicine uh, and for women in medicine, because there aren't that many women. I mean, there are now. Like, I think the majority of medical students are not female, and there are a lot of a lot more female residents. But in terms of women in, like, positions of power within, like, medical departments, not really the case yet. And so I think finding those mentors is really, is really difficult. My program director, who's a woman, is amazing. And she had um, spoken about, I think it was actually on a, on a um, there's, there's a podcast in my institution that actually looks to interview women in surgery. And uh, she spoke about during it how it was difficult as a resident to an extent of finding female mentors because there just weren't really that many. And that even now at like our institution, there aren't more senior female mentors. Like she's relatively young. And so there aren't really people who are older or further in their career within urology who are women, uh, at least at our institution, um, which once again, I think it's pretty common across the board for a lot of surgical specialties uh, across the country. And so I think that's really interesting and kind of an important thing to note, right? Like not having that, only thing, I think it'll be better going forward, right? The longer we go, the better it'll be for you know female residents coming through, or similarly for uh, minority residents coming through. But the same issue exists, right? If the mentor you are working with doesn't sort of understand a fundamental aspect of your experience, you may be missing something in that relationship. Yes, yes, I think I think that's a very fair point, and, and it most often comes up with women, but obviously it applies to a lot of other sort of minorities in medicine. I think with women in medicine, actually, the thing you just said made me think of something. And so there's kind of a half-formed thought, but I'm going to say it, which is that it's very interesting to think, let's say for just your program director in particular, that she started and she didn't have a female mentor. Presumably she had other mentors, men as mentors, right? Which is fine. I mean, that also is common, right? Like right. you have a male mentor. It's like, of right. And then she gets to her position and she's saying like, there's not a lot of other people at my position and there's not a lot of other women above me. So I, like I'm out of mentors right now uh, who are also women. On top of that, she has also probably become the de facto mentor for any woman who then comes into the field. And we talk about like, you know, I think a lot of attendings think that they didn't sign up for this job. They didn't want to be a mentor and now they are. It's doubled for her. 
And maybe she, it's not, I mean, from everything you've said about her, she really is good at it. But you could imagine a person who, you know, they, they wanted to be a surgeon, they became a surgeon, and they're not interested in anything else. But if they're a minority, they've now become this de facto role model, right? Right. Yeah, yeah. yeah. That's a good point. And, and a lot of the articles talk about the difference between a role model and a mentor, right? It, it's good to note that, like, if you really don't want to be a mentor, that is fine. If you don't want to do it, you can seek a job where you don't do it. Ultimately, though, you will be a role model, almost invariably. People will look to you, they'll look at how you practice, and they'll say, do I want to be that person or do I not want to be that yeah, person? Yeah, role model meaning positive or negative. Right? Yeah, yeah. And oftentimes the case is negative, and oftentimes the case is positive. It just, it depends on how you approach it. But to acknowledge that you have an effect on other people, even if you don't want to, you have to acknowledge that you have a role either as a mentor or as a role model. And I think it's reasonably obvious, but so the articles you mentioned do discuss it. Uh, yeah. And there's a basically the clarification, right? So that a mentoring relationship involves an exchange of communication and guidance, whereas in a case of a role model, there may be no explicit supervisory relationship, right? So the mentoring relationship is like more of a coach and then the role model relationship is more of hashtag goals, right? Like those are basically, the, that's like, the distinction, right? It's like someone you're like, oh, I aspire to be like them. And the mentor is like, here is like concrete things that I can help you with. Right. And it actually, it's great when you factor that into mosaic mentorship, because it also means that your mentors don't have to be role models. They don't have to be people who you want to be like. They can just be people who have a positive influence on your life. For me, like I actually have a mentor who is an eternal medicine attending and she is just a very nice person who like genuinely cares about sort of my life and career. Oh, that's really cool. I didn't know yeah, that. Yeah, and, and that is not related to her career. She doesn't, you know, want to do radiology, but she just checks in and, and is interested. And that's like been a very positive influence in my life. And that is a thing both you can do going forward. I try to do it to all the residents who come in and, you know, wrongfully decide that they don't want to do radiology. <laughs> and despite their poor decision making skills, I still try to mentor them in their individual <laughs> fields. <laughs> no, but that's, uh, I think that's, I think that's really cool. I think that I, so yeah, I, I didn't know that. Like, I don't think something you mentioned before, but that's really, that's really cool. Um, and I think it's a really good example. I think the, the concept of mentorship and how it affects women in surgery and certainly radiology where these fields don't have a ton of women in them is, is very heavily discussed. And the one point I wanted to make, you know, because obviously we don't have that perspective necessarily, yeah. but I do want to make the point of like, what is the role of a guy in that situation, right? You have to be willing to mentor people who aren't like you. If you see somebody from a minority group or you see, like, say, yeah, there's not a ton of women in your specialty, you have to get over yourself and and open yourself up to mentoring these people because you don't have to be their end-all, be-all mentor. Remember that. Like, you don't have to mentor them on what it's like to have kids during residency because, yeah, you, you won't know. But you can still mentor them on your field specifically, and you can guide them towards the resources that can mentor them in things that you aren't good at, you know? If you don't know that perspective, you probably know people who have that perspective, who maybe aren't in your field, but you can talk to them about that. And you have to engage with it. The biggest thing that I, I do right now, just as a resident, is when I'm at conferences, I go to the women in IR talks, and I just just listen to the things that they have to say and it's like often very uncomfortable and it's often like 
things that maybe you don't want to acknowledge are problems, but you just listen and you hear it and you walk out of there and you take it in. Just believe, believe that their stories are true, that their insight is true, that that's their real lived in experience and just choose to live in that experience because you don't have to. It's totally optional. (laughs) You don't have to go there, but they don't have that option. And the least you can do is like experience and hear their stories i'm really curious when you when you do that um so i I in general haven't gone to that many urology conferences period Uh, when you've gone to those specific uh, sessions how many men are there in general more and more each time which is a good trend i've had some a lot of times it's a little bit of a guilt trip thing where it's like right after another talk and they're like you don't have to leave you know you could stay for this which is I think a valid tactic, frankly. <laughs> I, I, I think you, it's a wise decision, okay? If you can guilt people into listening to your story, do it. Fine. There, there are men out there who are willing to listen, uh, which is good. The other side of that is there's men out there who are there to express their thoughts on the situation. Mm. No one wants that. Not necessarily. <laughs> so there's, there's good examples of it where it's like, this has been my experience mentoring women as a man. So I've heard that. And those guys are great. A plus doing the work, right? There are other men out there who I'm going to have a very narrow view on their opinion. And this is because I disagree with them. And you maybe don't have that opinion, but there's other men out there whose opinion is essentially, I can't tell sexist jokes anymore. And that's their problem. That's the, that's the woman's problem for coming into my space. And they should have a better sense of humor. And they often talk about that. How the, oh, people, you know, they don't get my jokes and they don't understand and, and, and they misunderstanding and then they report me and I get in trouble. And that's, <laughs> that's because of them being sensitive. To be, to be clear, and I want to make sure we're on the same page here. These are things they say out loud in public in the women in RR session. Yes. That oh is things in you know I I, just, oh I will goodness. speak to the patience of the women on that panel because y'all I don't know I I was mad <laughs> and I'm just like what the fuck is going on but God, uh, clearly on, dude. the the women on that panel have gained uh, some diplomatic sensibility that maybe I don't have they've, they've reached a level of Zen that is like not attainable <laughs> yeah for so, like for like for like the layperson that's crazy. yeah oh my goodness. I what I would have been a little bit. So that's that's me being sort of an angry person who thinks that you should be able to adjust your sense of humor. But allow me to actually just empathize with them. You have been in this field for 30 years, and these are jokes that you have been able to tell for 30 years. And then suddenly it seems as though those jokes are no longer appropriate and that people don't like them. The fact of the matter is, unbeknownst to you, they were always inappropriate. And you always shouldn't have been telling them. And you were always making people uncomfortable. But you've existed in a position of power for 30 years in which nobody told you that the emperor has no clothes. But now somebody's saying, hey, you're kind of making a fool of yourself. You just have to acknowledge that. Don't fight them. Don't say like, no, I'm, I've got some dope ass pants on. What it, yeah, what it forces you to, to, to do is acknowledge not that I made this one bad joke. It's that for 30 years, I've been making these awful, inappropriate jokes. Right. Which is a lot harder to acknowledge. And I, I think we, we exist in a, in a society that maybe isn't always super forgiving. But if you acknowledge that you made a mistake and go forward saying that you will attempt to the best of your ability not to make that mistake, that's okay. It's okay to, ha- to acknowledge that maybe you did something wrong. It feels bad. I'll give you that. I mean, there have been times in my life 
you know, growing up in the 90s, I'm sure you can remember, Samir, there are jokes that I told in elementary school or let I think about now, and I'm like, that shit's awful, and I can't believe I ever said that. Maybe not elementary school, middle school. Yeah, middle, middle, school middle, middle, middle school is the, is the time. It's like, it's like you, your empathy hasn't properly developed, but you know too much. Yeah. So you yeah. tell just awful, you say like just jokes that are not good. Elementary school, I think you're like too innocent, really. And then, yeah, middle school is that, oh, really bad, right. bad time period for that. And I, I'm, I'm, I think about that stuff, and I think I have the luxury of saying, well, I was a kid back then, and I didn't know any better. Whereas maybe these people who have been doing that throughout their careers as physicians can, can't feel comfortable saying that, can't acknowledge that even though they felt like the adult who knew things, that they still made a mistake. But you have to acknowledge that you made a mistake and evolve. And you shouldn't feel uncomfortable with having a woman in your space because you think that they might get offended about a thing you should said. You should feel uncomfortable that maybe you've been saying offensive things all this time. Right. Yeah, exactly. And so I think that actually, I will say to an extent, dovetails with a discussion of how you form a good mentor-mentee relationship. Uh, There's one article that we read I think was really interesting. It wasn't like a study. It was sort of this one guy who has been an attending surgeon for a while. And he read a bunch of articles about mentorship and kind of just like overall summarized them slash gave his thoughts on like what makes a good mentor and like the benefits, the disadvantages, etc. And it's a really interesting article. It's not like an extraordinarily like scientifically rigorous trial, but I think it's actually a really interesting look at in a very deep sort of like sociologic way, how do you create that good relationship? And there's one discussion, he, I think he's borrowing from some literature uh, looking at like teacher-child relationships, perhaps, or something along those lines. Basically, how do you form a close relationship? And there are a lot of different parts to it. But one thing he talks about is this stage of a fear of infringement, which is basically the mentor has to accept that when you have a close relationship with a mentee, it is distinctly different from the superior subordinate relationship that exists before that, right? And so you can have a relationship. I mean, residency is trickier because residency, I think there is a, a hierarchy is particularly prominent, I think, within it. It's something we've discussed before. And you're, let's say you're in the OR with an attending. There is a distinct hierarchy there. And I think with good reason. Now, whether it's a malignant hierarchy or kind of a more like uh, one that allows for critique or questions, et cetera, as a different discussion. But existing within that space and then realizing that outside the OR, if this is your mentee, that your relationship actually may be different, that it's more, it's a more collegial relationship is a very difficult line to straddle, right? Or, or a very fine line to walk. I think it's pretty interesting. I hadn't heard it sort of discussed in that way, but once he, once I read it, I was like, oh, this actually makes a lot of sense, which is as a, an attending surgeon, the way you sort of interact with your residents is going to be one in which there's a very clear, like, I am the authority and I'm kind of delivering information like unto you. And the mentor-mentee relationship is one that like to be a true meaningful relationship requires a genuine back and forth of being, being able to show vulnerability on the part of the mentor, being able to express when you are unsure as a trainee, or even now why you feel unsure sometimes during cases and how you go about that. Or, you know, moments in which you required more guidance than you received, or basically things that are a little separate from a classic way you might interact with this resident otherwise, um, which I think was a really interesting way of discussing it, not something I'd really thought about before. Yes, yes. I think it goes together well with the concept that he discussed in this article that a good mentor-mentee relationship 
requires that the mentor adjust to the mentee, which violates that traditional hierarchy. Essentially, the point you were just making, which is that in a traditional medical education hierarchy, the attending exists as a monolith around which the resident and the med students revolve, right? The concept that the attending would have to adjust to then address the needs of the mentee, the resident, is not a idea that fits in with that traditional framework. So it, it involves actually evolving as both a human being and an attending to adjust your behaviors, right? To acknowledge that each individual mentee has a different outlook on life. You know, the joking version of it that we see, I, I don't know if you've had this in your program where you have like a senior resident who is just like a superstar and you're like, wow, they have set the bar impossibly high. <laughs> like, I don't know how to adjust to that. And it's very difficult. You feel that responsibility as a resident, but it's it's not actually your fault that you're not Superman. It's maybe the attending should acknowledge that that person is Excelsior and that maybe not everybody else will reach that level. It's cool to aspire to that level. Not everybody can reach that level. And it's your job to get everybody as close to that as possible. It's not necessarily their job alone. It's a job that you share together. Right. And this is very much reflected. I think there's a, there's a lot of discussion in within medical education about the idea of like a young attending. Uh, I think people say that a lot. Residents will be closer to like younger attendings often because they just like relate to them better. And I think part of that is just like they maybe get it more. They remember more what it's like to be a resident. But I think part of that is that the strictness of the hierarchy feels less. Like it feels less rigid. Right. Right. That it's not just that, you know, during in the OR, I'm going to listen to what they say without a question. I mean, yeah, sure. They're only like seven years older than me, but I'm like, yeah, you're my attending. Or even a senior resident, same kind of thing, right? They're not that much older than me, but like, I'm like, oh, I'm going to totally trust what you're telling me. Like, I'm not going to like challenge you on this. But at the same time, I feel like I could go to that person and talk to them about something in a way that I don't necessarily feel with attendings who are older, let's say, or further along in their career in like, let's say their 50s or 60s. And I think that is always going to be the case to an extent. But I think actually what the point that this article makes is part of that is if you really form a close relationship with someone, you can actually get past that, even if you are like the quote unquote like older attending. I don't think I'd conceptualize it that same way. I kind of just viewed it as sort of this, like really, like, like almost like an age or an age or career advancement kind of thing. But I don't think I, say, I don't think it has to be. Yeah, yeah. Well, and I think it's a lot of it's based on your propensity to forget what residency is like. You know, I mean, even now there are times where I forget what med school is like, and I have to actively remind myself. You know, I turn and look at the med student and be like, "What was I? What would I be thinking if I was in that position right now?" And going back to what maybe feels like an uncomfortable place to acknowledge that, like, yes, I was once this person and I had feelings and maybe I should address those feelings that may be cropping up in this person themselves. And as you get older, you just get further away from it. That's not like a failing. That's not, you know, right. you're just far further away from it by definition. Right. And you have to kind of choose to go back to it, whereas the young attendings, it's probably just right there it's right in the back of their head that they were a resident 10 seconds ago you know so it's easier for them to empathize and to put themselves in your shoes whereas the older attending might not feel that way the the benefit that they have the reason that this isn't hopeless is that you have residents there to keep you in check to some extent 
you know, you don't have to forget what the resident experience is like because the residents are right there experiencing that. It kind of goes right back to my previous point, which is that if you just, if you find yourself forgetting what the resident experience is like, just listen and you'll hear what the resident experience is like. As coming back to the whole point that the mentor-mentee relationship is a two-way street, you have to take as much as you give. Yeah, I think broadly what a lot of this has kind of summarized for me is that I think the way I had viewed mentoring was a sort of this vague, like, yeah, like gives you advice kind of on your life or career. And I think that is sort of an aspect of it. But I don't think I necessarily thought in detail about the actual aspects that go into it. And that's not to say that when uh, with a good mentor, they have a checklist of things like, did I show empathy? Like, did I show vulnerability? Of course not. But I think when you break it down, there are actually a lot of really distinct roles you have to play in order to foster like good mentorship and i think treating it like that treating it like something that requires this active effort beyond just like oh yeah i give them advice like an active really fostering of that relationship i think is very important and as i think you you see in many different studies and i think the one i would mention earlier was particularly notable it has a meaningful impact on your residents beyond just the, oh, they have a better idea of how to go about their career. But like, because of the depth of that relationship, they feel like they are heard. They feel like somebody cares about what they're going through. And it makes a meaningful difference in terms of things like burnout, wellness, you know, general quality of life. And so doing that, you know, having that formalization of this process, you know, I think is useful. That's a that's a really good penultimate point, Samir. Uh, I definitely agree. I guess the the last thing that I want to add, you know, sort of as a final point to wrap things up, is um, I'll make a man out of you. While it's a great song, it's very catchy. It's it's kind of troubling in 2020. So I see why maybe they wouldn't include that. Wouldn't want to include. That's true. That's fair. Yeah. So, so I think so next catchy. week, we'll, yeah, we'll we'll expand on the concept of sort of like what is it like to mentor a woman and how you should avoid applying I'll make a man out of you in that context. I will say in the defense of the movie, it, it is it, the assumption is that they're all men and he's trying to say, I'll make you a warrior, really. Sure. But, but isn't that just kind of... It, it basically, if you're not a warrior, you're not a man. Right, right. Because like... Uh, yeah, you know, there's there's a toxic masculinity to that as well, for sure. And it's kind of classic Disney, right? Because like Lion King... They totally ignore the fact that the lionesses do all the hunting. Like, lionesses are way more badass than lions. Oh, oh right. I was like, I don't remember that from a movie. And I'm like, oh, right, of course, right. That, that's, yeah, that's, that's, you that's don't what remember saying. it. That's, that's what you're saying. Right, of course, yes. In real yeah. life. <laughs> exactly. So that's really the last point I wanted to make. I think that's a good place to end. I guess if you take one thing away from that, <laughs> this whole podcast, that's the thing I want you to take away. Right. But lionesses, they do all the hunting. Yeah. Thanks for listening, guys. Uh, as always, our theme song is Nothing Slash Anything by Westy Reflector. You can follow us on Instagram at MWS Podcast or Facebook at Facebook.com slash MWS Podcast FB. Uh, we also have a website linked on our various social media accounts. Uh, and we are on iTunes, along with many other podcasting apps. If you have one that we are not on, feel free to let us know at our email, session at gmail.com, and we can add it. Thanks for listening. See you guys next week.